as we continue our worship, we're going to come to God um, and hear His Word for us, from, first from Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, this morning, we're shifting gears a little bit for the next month. We've been looking at encountering God uh, since Easter, and Pastor Harrison and I agreed that we wanted to focus for a little while on a little more practical uh, ways in which we, ex- we experience God, but also grow in relationship with God in different areas of our parts of our lives. So what does that look like to grow in relationship with God among our family or uh, when we're at work, when we're resting or praying? And so this morning I'm kicking that off by focusing on our life together. Uh, when we come here to this place, uh, when we are in the church building, as it were, but also our life together as a community. And so my main point this morning, uh, if you're feeling that sort of early summer malaise and you just need to rest, rest your eyes or rest your heart, I'll just give you the main point right now, and then you can uh, quiet your heart. My main point is that we will be a strong Christian community when we do what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. So we're going to read that together, uh, and then I'll talk for about 20 or 25 minutes more. So this is what uh, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. And normally, I can read it off the screen behind me, but the words are looking small today. I hope I don't need glasses. So I have a real Bible, an actual physical one. Um, So I'm going to read from there. So Ephesians chapter 4, I'm going to read verses 1 through 10, and this is uh, very close to that version, but not exactly the same. Paul says, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body. And one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one, to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he, Christ, ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So far, the reading of God's word. So can we do it? I said uh, before I read that passage that uh, we will be a strong Christian church community when we do what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. When we live a life worthy of the calling which we have received. Can we do it? And what does it look like to do it, not just as individuals, but as a community, as a church? We're worshiping together this morning. This is part of our regular routine and rhythm as a congregation. But there are many other parts of our our life together as well. 
For example, after the service, you'll be invited down, you are invited downstairs for a time of fellowship and food together. There are all of these things that we do together as part of the church. But what does it really mean to grow deeper in relationship with God as a part of a church community? Well, we know that many people resist being a part of a church community. And there's two things that I observe most regularly as objections against Christians or uh, against Christianity in general. People have reasons for why they might not come into this building and might not grow in a deeper relationship with God or God's people, whether that's here at River Park or in any other church. And normally, the most common objections I hear, especially from uh, Western people, come in this way. They say Christians, first, either Christians don't live differently from anyone else. Christians have a very similar life to other people. They're just busier on the weekends. And the second uh, objection that I hear is that Christians might talk a lot about love, but actually what they do, what they live, is selfish or sometimes judgmental lives. People's problem with Christianity, I think, usually comes down to two, one of two factors. Either it's a pragmatic argument where they just say, well, practically, the life of Christian doesn't look much different. So why would I, work, why would I put in the extra effort? Or uh, often there's a moral argument. They say Christians have a high standard for behavior, but don't always themselves live up to that standard. So people say either I don't want to be busier than I am or have more guilt than I already have, a practical argument, or uh, I don't want to be a hypocrite, a more moral argument, so I won't be a Christian. Now, if we call ourselves a Christian, then we recognize and think that uh, what it doesn't mean, excuse me, we, rec- we, we recognize and don't think that being a Christian means that you're always praised by the world. That is nobody's experience, uh, not even Jesus. But nevertheless, the Apostle Paul calls, or the Apostle Peter, excuse me, calls Christians uh, in 1 Peter, he says, live such good lives among the pagans, which is to say people who aren't Christians. Live such good lives among the pagans or among the world that although they might accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Living such good lives, as Peter says, and living a life worthy of your calling, as the Apostle Paul says, are not once-a-week tasks. Living a life worthy of your calling is not for Sunday only. Paul says, again, in the text we just read, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bonds of peace. Those characteristics that Paul talks about and that Peter talks about show themselves over time. You can't know if with someone you only see once whether they're a patient person or always whether they're a humble person. People in our world who are not attracted to Christianity or who are repelled from and pushed away from Christianity usually don't have a problem with Christians gathering as we gather on a Sunday. Many people 
don't have a problem with belief in God or even belief in Jesus. Instead, most people's, many people's objection to Christianity centers around the actions or inactions of Christians. Now, I want to be clear that our impression to the world and Sunday worship, our first impression of the world and Sunday worship and fellowship are certainly important. But Paul and God in his word calls Christians to make a lasting impression on one another and on the people around us. A lasting impression that is worthy of the calling you have received. Let's remind ourselves what that calling is. What's the calling that Christians have received? Well, it's very simple. Two words, follow Jesus. This is the calling that God's people have received from the beginning all throughout the Bible. Before Jesus came to earth, God said to Abraham, Be holy as I am holy. Walk with me blamelessly. Jesus called his disciples and said to them, Follow me. And later the Apostle Paul in another place tells Timothy, Follow me as I follow Jesus. The calling, the, the calling that Christians have received is always a simple and clear calling. Follow Jesus. Be like God. Following Jesus is not uh, only about our words. It's not only about where we find ourselves on a Sunday morning or what we do with our weekends. Imagine for a moment if you read the Bible, whether you read a, a, a physical Bible or, or you read it digitally, and you read all the words of Jesus. And then imagine that uh, you, read, you read all the words of Jesus, you knew all the words of Jesus, but then you read in this story that Jesus, uh, when he went around and said all of these things, that he preached solo, that he didn't have any disciples that he charged admission for people to come to the amphitheater and hear him. And that afterwards, Jesus went away by himself and hid in a private room. If you could imagine such a thing, I would strongly suggest to you that Jesus would not have been the same compelling teacher that he was, even if none of his words were different. To put it another way, I would say that words alone are not compelling. Even the true words, even the right words, when we offer them to other people with pride, when we offer them roughly or in a frustrated or critical way, even the right words in that circumstance aren't compelling. They don't actually really help another person. This is why the gospel writer John tells us that the word of God became flesh and lived among us. That God, in his wisdom, didn't just tell us the right thing to do, but gave us a word that lived in our midst. This is what Paul is emphasizing here as well. That the call of the life of a Christian is where our actions match our calling and our identity. Not just once a week, but day in and day out in, a regular part of or in, in our regular lives. So what does this look like? in the church? What does it look like to grow in relationship with God in the church? <clears throat> think about it for yourself. When, when you think of the word church, probably most often or most quickly you think of this building or maybe this particular room. 
Most often in the West, when we think of the church, we think of one or a few leaders who stand up in front of a room like this and teach or preach publicly and then are hidden or lost from public view for the rest of the week. To put it another way, we don't necessarily think of the way of Jesus. As I just said, I don't think that Jesus would have been as compelling if he showed up once in a while and then no one else saw him, what what he was doing or where he was going or people weren't with him. But that's most often in the West what we think of when we think of church. And I think it's worth mentioning here for a moment that uh, every Christian has a calling. Paul is saying to the church, the whole church in Ephesus, live a life worthy of your calling. Sometimes we only think about ministers as having a calling and other people have a job. And somehow those are different things in our minds. Ministers do have a key and honorable role in the life of the church. That's also true of elders uh, like Jerry, who we installed this morning, like our other elders, and also our deacons. And we have many other leaders in the life, or in River Park Church, who also have key and honorable roles in some part or area of our life together. But all of those roles, all of those tasks, important as they are, are secondary to the calling that all Christians received to follow Jesus. It's very sad that in recent history we've had too many reminders, too many reminders of ministers or key leaders, but especially ministers, who have tried to play that key role in the life of the church, but have forgotten their first and primary role, which is to follow Jesus. And so instead of helping or serving their congregation, They take advantage of people. They serve their own desires. Paul reminds us that Jesus' way of life and ministry is both a calling for all Christians and a daily embodied reality that connects us with other people and connects us with God. So what should this look like in the church? What should it look like for a church to grow in relationship with God? Well, I mentioned earlier that we have a potluck or a fellowship lunch after the service today. At at our fellowship lunch, I think it might look like any number of groups of people sitting together, talking together, going deeper together. It doesn't necessarily look like everybody talking with everybody, but it's people who have already shared many things together but they take this opportunity to be with one another once again. This was Jesus' way, and he regularly managed it with about a dozen or 12 disciples. And our groups are usually or often the same. We tend to have meaningful, personal conversations in groups of maybe between 6 and 12 people. If the group gets bigger than that, the dynamic changes. After all, the kind of conversation that you can have with 10 people is very different to the kind of conversation that you have with 25 people. And even more than that, very different from a group dynamic where there's 100 people or more. We're not really having a conversation. It's just me talking. And all of you are here kindly, thoughtfully listening. If you try to talk with 100 people in a day, at best... You might just offer and receive just a fleeting impression 
of another person. They might only get just a brief sense of who you are and maybe not very accurate. But at a fellowship lunch, for example, as different groups of people talk and share and laugh together, there also are some smaller groups. Some individuals who love to talk with someone new or to have some more personal conversation with a dear friend or loved one. Excuse me. These smaller, uh, more personal conversations are also an important part of drawing together as a body, first by sharing ourselves with someone else. At our best, a church gathering, what we do on Sunday together, uh, whether here in this room or in other places, at our best, a church gathering is a sort of a family table time where we catch up, where we reconnect, and also where we plan for how we're going to continue to be involved in one another's lives. To use Paul's words, how we're going to continue to bear with one another in love in the next week. Not forget about each other or ignore each other until the next week. At our best, we grow in relationship with God in the church community by far, far more than just the words we hear. Excuse me. At our best, we are meaningfully connected to one another and loving and serving alongside one another or growing together on a regular basis. As good or helpful or interesting as my words are, or maybe they're not, someone's real life experiences are always far more compelling. When I think of the people who are the most influential in my life, it's not professionals. It's not people whose uh, podcasts I listen to or TV shows I watch. Excuse me. I enjoy those people and what they have to say, but the people who are most formative to me, who are, whose lives are most influential, are the people that I spend the most time with. They don't have to lecture me to tell me uh, to tell me what they think. They don't, have to, they don't even have to talk or, or explicitly say what they think for me to watch how they wrestle with good and evil, how sometimes they triumph and other times they fail, how their life points towards God. Our words and our teachings are very important, but it's not the words of instruction from other people that I usually remember most. When I think of mentors and wise people in my life, I do remember their words, but I always remember their words alongside of their lived testimony. I remember how they treat others, how they hold up under pressure. I remember how I felt when I was with them in some key moment. To put it another way, to put it another way, when I think about the people who have been mentors and wise examples to me, when I think about people who show me what it is to grow in the church, I remember their humility and their gentleness. And I don't remember their humility and gentleness in general. I remember their humility and gentleness to me. I remember their patience. Not their patience in general, but their patience with my foolishness, with my stubbornness. I remember the way in which they worked to stay connected, not with people in general, but with me, to bear with me 
in love. You see, we don't live our lives as people in general. We don't hold our beliefs or uh, say the things that we believe just to the empty air. We always live in particular. We live in a particular place. We have particular neighbors, particular families, a particular job, and we live at a particular place or time in history. Our words, our actions, our inactions always come in a context with other people and other events also going on. Paul clearly understands the importance of our words and our lived action. That's why he calls us to humility, to gentleness, to patience, and to love. He doesn't call us to talk about how important those things are, but to do them. And then he says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bonds of peace. The unity that Paul is talking about is a pretty tricky thing here. Real unity is always tricky. It's always difficult, and we always like to take the easier route if there's one available. If something's hard, we prefer not to have to do it. We just talk about doing it instead. Real unity doesn't require, uh, real unity is not enough to talk about humility and gentleness and patience and love. And actual, actually, real unity requires not only that we are humble, that we are gentle, that we are patient, that we are loving, but real unity requires us to be humble, to be patient, to be gentle, and to be loving, even and especially when other people are not. And that's the real trick. Jesus reminds us it's, easier to, it's easy to love someone who is kind to you. But Jesus calls us even to love our enemies or people we might want to make into enemies, people who have made us into enemies. Most of us like to be kind. We like to think of ourselves as kind people. But we also like to be right. Making every effort toward unity means that we rub shoulders with other people. We have to come to terms with other people's annoying habits or their sometimes hurtful comments. We have to realize that we're not always the center of attention when we think we should be. We're not always going to get our way. We're not always going to be listened to or appreciated how we deserve. We are sometimes going to be annoyed or frustrated or tired or confused. And this is why Paul challenges Christians to be humble to be gentle, to be patient, to bear with one another in love as a life worthy of our calling. Because everything else in our hearts and in our world pushes us to do the opposite. Have you ever noticed, excuse me, have you ever noticed that uh, most things in our world suggest to us that it's others who really need to change? Politicians uh, talk about their own great plans, but when things fail, they usually blame the opposition. Celebrities or public personalities will call out other people for hate speech, but they'll neglect to use their own wealth or influence to do good in the world. Even many Christians long for a day, hope for a day, when everyone else 
would come to church again, when they would change and be like us. The great value of our age, it turns out, is not unity. At best, I think it could be stated as tolerance. Tolerance demands or expects that someone else is going to change for me. Tolerance expects that other people will change to accommodate my needs or preferences or expectations. Our society is filled with tolerant people, which is one of the reasons our society is filled with rage, with impatience, and with gossip. Because tolerance leads to wider rifts and bigger gaps because it starts by expecting that everyone else will change. Intolerance usually refuses to examine ourselves. Unity, on the other hand, real unity that the Bible talks about, unity expects that I will change to make room for others. Real unity expects that I will change to make room for others. Real unity expects or demands even that I will live a life worthy of my calling, that we will, as Paul instructs us. Not that we'll just talk about humbleness and gentleness and patience, but that we'll actually be humble and gentle and patient. This is what Paul is calling us to do. Paul doesn't want us to forget, as he says at the top of this little section I read, that he is also living the message that he is giving. That Paul is suffering in prison for the sake of the gospel. Paul reminds the Ephesians that he has already embodied the message that he is bringing them. And that he's suffering because Jesus is at the center of his life. For Paul, or for any of us, to walk in a manner worthy of our calling is impossible without the perfect example of Jesus, without the indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit. I said that unity demands or expects that I change and I make room for others. This is because Jesus is the perfect example of making room to accommodate others. God in his perfection did not continue to demand that people be holy from the beginning. As I said, called Abraham, said, be holy as I am holy. But God in Jesus made room so that there was a way for us to be with God, to be holy with and alongside Him. He didn't wait or expect that we would figure it out on our own and eventually find our way to Him. He gave so much. He gave Himself. He gave His life, even His life unto death, so that we could have a way, so that we could have room to be with God to grow in relationship with God, and even to do it alongside other people. This is why when Paul is teaching here that he doesn't point at himself and say, be like me, he points to Jesus' perfect example. Paul reminds us that Jesus descended from heaven to earth, that he emptied himself and became human, so that at his ascension back to heaven, that, God, that Jesus might fill all things. Even in his incarnation, Jesus was perfectly humble, perfectly gentle, perfectly 
patient. Jesus' perfect obedience won us perfect unity with God. Jesus made room for you, for me, to be with God. Through his life and suffering and death, Jesus created that room for us. And so when we create room for others to also follow Jesus alongside of us, we're making room for for more people to know and love and serve God in God's family or in the church. As I said, unity requires us to be humble, to be gentle, to be patient, and to be loving, even and especially when other people are not. And if we are going to live a life that is worthy of our calling as individuals and as a community, then we will not be patient or loving or uh, humble or gentle because other people deserve it. We will be humble and patient and loving and gentle through the power of the Holy Spirit because that is how God was and is with us. And the closer that we are to Jesus, the closer Jesus is to the center of our being, the more we begin to act like him, the more his life flows out of, our, out of us and out of our lives. <clears throat> as a result, the unity that we have as a church and the unity that we are pursuing is not tolerance. It's not just agreeing to disagree and move on and go our separate ways. Our unity begins with God. And it doesn't demand or expect that the world will change around us. It's exactly the opposite. We testify in word and deed that Jesus sacrificed himself to make room for us. And so we're not trying to get other people to also make room for us. We are eager to give of ourselves so that other people might know and experience the love of God and the room that God has made for us along with us. So we don't, chase, we don't need to chase praise or notoriety because our eyes are on Jesus. Jesus has given us what we need. And we, we do not have to be discouraged when we're criticized or when we're ignored because Jesus is our life. This is how we grow in relationship with God at the church, in the community of believers. It's not that we try or, or try to invite others, or it's not certainly that we only invite others to come and hear. And it's not first that we ask or expect other people to change. What it means to grow in relationship with God at church is to invite others to come and see. See what God is doing in me. See what God is doing in us. Paul says that to each of us, to all of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Can you see the ways in which God has given you His grace? Can you see the ways that God has showered His blessings on you and made room for you? Can you see it clearly enough or, or put it into a sentence or a point and look and say, look, there it is. Because then... You'll be ready to say to someone else, come and see what God is doing in my life, in our community. 
To live a life worthy of our calling is not a task to do out of religious obligation. It's a thing that happens when Christ fills your heart and your life and mine. Through Christ, we're joined with the church, with God's people of all times and places, all the way back to the first disciples and even to God's people in the Old Testament. And as we are joined together with Christ, we will find that we disagree about just about many things, but we'll never run out of joy for seeing who God is and how God is working both in ourselves and in others. When we're united with Christ, when the, and when we're united with the church in all times and places, we learn the necessity of unity and the necessity of humility and gentleness, of patience and love, which allow us to live in that unity. The church, after all, does not point others or ourselves to ourselves. The church, first and foremost, points all people, including ourselves, to God, to Jesus. We join the church in hearing and responding to the call that has always been for God's people to follow Jesus, to follow God. And so as much as we can, we make room for others to do the same. We're eager to embrace them because God was eager to embrace us. We're eager to see how differences offer us an opportunity to see God more at work and to see how much we have to celebrate so that all of our, so our lives, all of our lives, can celebrate and testify to the world that Christ is in us and that every day Christ is more and more a part of our lives. That's the kind of community that I want to be a part of, that we want to be a part of, a community that is worthy of our calling that God has given us. So please join me in a word of prayer as we close. God, we, as we close just one more time, we'll say thank you that you make us worthy of the calling that we have received. Thank you that we don't uh, show up ready and worthy on our own. Thank you that the humility, that the love, that the patience, that everything that you call us to are the things that you have given us first. And so we ask, Lord, that Jesus be more and more at the center of our lives. Yes, on a Sunday. Yes, on a Monday. But every day and every hour of the day, every place that you call us to. And continue to use our gatherings here as for worship, for fellowship, for fun as the place where we continue to be encouraged and reminded and challenged to live the life that you have called us to live as individuals and also as groups. And to do it not for our own praise, not for our own glory, but to return the glory and honor and praise to you that you have emptied of yourself out of love for us and for our world. Continue to use us to love and serve and care for one another and for everyone who you put in our lives. 
All these things we pray not because we are worthy of it or we are so good, but we pray it because of Jesus' goodness and, because, and we pray it in His name and His power. Amen.